Each day, I divide my writing time into three distinct phases, preparing, working, concluding. Before I begin working, I prepare to work, often by reviewing yesterday's writing, by browsing through books and notes, by carefully planning my work for the day, by scribbling some phrases and ideas. Each day, I write a set of goals. Often they are as simple as sketch what life was like during the war when mom and I lived alone in the apartment in Hoboken. Try to write two pages. Try to remember specific details and feelings and to relate feelings to happenings. I try to make sure that these are clear and attainable. This keeps me feeling good about my work. Henry Miller, too, planned carefully in writing Tropic of Cancer. He describes one small part of his grand plan. Hereditary picture, the ancestral swarm, blood, race, prejudices, taints, insanity, and deaths. Death as dominant philosophic theme. After my day's work, I review what I've done. Sometimes I sketch a plan for the next day, write some ideas into an ongoing list that I generate as I work, then I print my work, back it up on a disc I take with me everywhere, clear my desk, file, and store my material. I take a break, have a snack, then I read. After my day's work, I need a physical activity, a walk, say, to clear my head and help me move on to the other parts of my life. One way we can foreclosure our process during the working phase is not to pay attention to our intuitive sense of what we need to write. I continually remind my my students to be open and receptive to let their work surprise them. Successive stages, deepening and ordering, will enable us to make sense of our bits and pieces. Now, though, is the time to stay free, to write what commands our attention. We sense, feel, into it what we should be doing rather than telling ourselves what we must do. One day, a former student, now an acclaimed novelist, came to my office. She was distraught that her work wasn't up to the high standards she'd set for herself. She was writing about her young female character's summers in the Catskill Mountains. She had established that the girl was the daughter of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. But the work was wooden. She couldn't imagine, she couldn't manage to make it come alive. What happens while you're working? I asked her. Well, I work on what I think I should be working on, and then something pops into my head, and then I get distracted, but I force myself to keep at what I'm doing. Why? I asked. Because I'm afraid of using whatever comes to mind. At this stage, though, it is whatever comes to mind that will unlock our work most successfully. I suspected she was censoring herself. The real story, or the moment that would inform the rest of her story, was in what was surfacing but she was unwilling to use. Tell me one image, I said. Yesterday, she said, a picture of my heroine in the basement of her father's temple with a group of her friends came to me. They were smearing her menstrual blood on the walls. I was stunned and thrilled by the transgressive power of this original image, yet I could see why she initially chose not to welcome it. It would take her into complex emotional terrain. You have to use it, I said. It'll unlock your story. She did, and in time wrote a brilliant acclaimed novel. Emotionally, her difficult work lay in dealing with her feelings about this image, her shame, her guilt, her fear. But using it taught her to take risks that made her work mature. Working on combat zones was joyful and enriching. The major surprise in my writing was how accurately I remembered what our street and our apartment looked like. 
what my mother wore, how I behaved when my father came home, what our fights were like. As I wrote, my sense of myself broadened. I felt I was regaining something I hadn't even realized I'd lost, my and my family's history. I recognized the richness of my past. I started to feel rooted in a way I hadn't before. I took a few trips to Hoboken. I saw the old apartment where I grew up. I remembered what the streets looked like in wartime with only women, girls, boys, and old men, virtually no men my father's age. I remembered the blackout curtains, the druggist Mr. Albini, who helped us when we kids got hurt. I visited the school I went to. Doing this unleashed many more memories that became Finding My Way, the next piece I worked on. At times as I worked, I felt the piece was writing itself. I had a treasure trove of jottings and journal entries from the germinating stage. A great surprise was recalling and describing details about my father I had forgotten. How he stayed with me for a year after I was born to ensure I was getting good care, for he suspected my mother's depression might compromise my well-being. I had known that my mother's depression and inability to care for me was a significant piece of my personal history, but I realized that it was linked in part to the war. I saw that it must have been horrifying for her to have a husband in a combat zone while she tried to care for me single-handedly. I was beginning to realize that my parents' lives and mine were profoundly affected by the times in which we lived. This was something I'd never, been, I'd never before understood. At some point, we will probably wake up and notice suddenly that we know what we must do to finish our work. We have a felt sense that our work no longer poses any major challenges to us, that all we need to do is put in our time and the work will surely someday be finished. With every project I've undertaken, I've eventually had this feeling. For me, it's signaled by an urge to organize, clean, and polish my desk. With one book, I had to wait until almost the very end, though sometimes this feeling comes early. Whenever it comes, though, enjoy it. It is a generous gift the process gives us in return for our commitment to it. Deepening. After I completed the working stage of my memoir, Combat Zones, I had about 20 pages or so of bits and pieces, each of which I had revised often, none of which was complete. There was no comprehensible narrative, no development, no clear beginning, middle, or end, no pattern to the work. The portraits of my parents weren't fully realized. Though some of the writing was clear, detailed, even powerful, it wasn't yet complete. Nor was there much depth to the story. Events ranged over time, my father going to war, my being born, his coming back, my beginning to feel enraged at him for imposing rules with no real plot, no causation. These are common features of our writing before we deepen and order it. During the deepening of our work, we ask ourselves many, many questions. What else can I say about this? What else was I feeling? What else might have been happening? Why did this happen? Why else did this happen? Is this really how it happened? Is this really how I was feeling? Is this really how they were? Can I say even more here? Would someone who didn't know me or what I experienced understand this? Is this as clear as I can make it? What connections can I make here? I love the deepening stage more than any other, for by revisiting what we've written, by revising what's there, by adding what's missing, by eliminating what's extraneous, by clarifying what's murky, we can come to an even richer, fuller understanding of ourselves and our stories, and we mature in ways we hadn't imagined were possible. During the stage of writing Combat Zones, I realized 
I had to write much more about my parents' personal histories. Their portraits were too skimpy. I wrote about my father, that he had to work from when he was seven, that his father routinely abandoned his family, leaving my father just a boy in charge, that he had witnessed much violence during the war, that he had a spectacular tenor singing tenor singing voice and had wanted to study opera but couldn't. I wrote what I knew about my mother, that her mother had died leaving my mother to be cared for by abusive and neglected caregivers, that she detested her stepmother who she felt never loved her, that she had won an important award for her writing in high school, that she couldn't go to college but instead had to work to help support the family. Doing this made me begin to understand cause and effect in my history. I saw that my parents' behaviors had roots in how they had been treated, just as mine did. This made me see them as people with histories and problems, too. Isabel Allend was observed that during this phase, we write to understand, to find the motivation to people's actions. Through writing about my parents' pasts, for the first time, I could understand their points of view and could feel empathy toward them. This occurred because I was deepening my writing. As I learned more about my parents' characters, I was forced to go beyond my solipsistic point of view and to enlarge my perspective. I became sensitive to the context of their lives as I became more aware of mine. Because I'd formulated a new story about them and me, my behavior changed. My mother was dead, but now I could love her as never before. And when my father was 80 and I was 50, we started to become friends and to enjoy each other. I wrote these feelings into my work. During this stage, I re-examined family photos I had looked at earlier. Some of my parents on their honeymoon captivated my attention. In them, my father looks dapper, handsome, happy. By looking at them, I remembered what he was like before the war, and I felt an upsurge of love for him, something that, if I hadn't been deepening my work, I would have missed. My mother, though, looks disconnected, sad, and unhappy, and I realized that her depression predated my birth. Somehow, I'd always felt responsible for her sadness. Now, I saw it was something she'd suffered for years. This unlocked a memory that she'd been institutionalized as a child. The pattern of my life was becoming clearer. As I revisited my work, revising and deepening it, I learned about ambivalence. I learned that my parents weren't the cardboard cutouts I'd held in memory. I learned that they'd had problems, that there were reasons for their behavior. I started again to feel the love for them I'd felt years before, while also still harboring feelings of sorrow and resentment against them for how I'd been treated. I also learned to tolerate ambiguity. I understood that there were mysteries about the past that I could perhaps never resolve. My mother's childhood, for instance. Why and when was she institutionalized? I might never know. One day, as I was driving home from Hunter, I heard a report on national public radio about post-traumatic stress syndrome in veterans of World War II caused by their untold stories from their wartime experiences. I suddenly realized that I wasn't the only child in the wo world who had a father who came back, changed from the war. It had happened to the children of an entire generation whose history and mine were connected. I learned that my father's, father's rages were no doubt caused by the war. I learned to contextualize my story. This is healing, for it teaches us that many others share our experiences. Another way of deepening our work is by using figurative language. 
Sometimes, as we're searching for a way to represent our feelings during a particular moment or to describe what someone looked like or how they acted, we stumble onto an image, simile, metaphor, or symbol that enlarges the meaning of our work. It also more completely defines our experience by exposing the set of connections we make. Sometimes it shifts the meaning of our work onto another plane entirely by bringing seemingly unrelated material together. This technique is central to Marcel Proust's genius and to his great wisdom as well. Can it be that writing figurative language makes us write? Early in Swan's Way, Proust is trying to describe precisely his pleasure when allowed to be with members of his family and his supreme anguish when forced to spend time alone in his room away from them, most especially from his mother. When separated from her, he expresses that thinking of the future when he'll rejoin her serves for him as a bridge across the terrifying abyss that yawned at my feet. To distract himself from his pain, he repeats some favorite lines to himself, but he compares the effort to that of how a surgical patient thinks to a local anesthetic can look on fully conscious while an operation is being performed upon him and yet feel nothing. Both images, the bridge across the abyss and the surgery performed on the conscious patient, show us the intensity of the child's suffering his sense that leaving his mother was unbearably painful, even potentially lethal, in a way that prosaic language never could. In deepening combat zones, I suddenly realized that for their honeymoon trip in 1941, on their way to Maine, my father took my mother on a tour of the revolutionary war battlefields of Massachusetts. I hadn't understood the importance of this enormously important symbolic detail while writing my early version. I hadn't even included it. Now, though, I could see how deeply unsettling this must have been for my mother. Knowing she might lose her husband to a war, she was rock walking across fields where scores of men had died. Suddenly, I realized I could unify the piece by using war imagery wherever it seemed appropriate. As an infant, my parents stuck to a rigid feeding schedule, which meant I cried constantly. I compared my crying to the blaring of the air raid sirens. I described myself in pictures after my father goes away as looking shell-shocked, and so on. As I wrote these images, which seemed to come naturally, I understood that I was another kind of war casualty. Finding the symbolism then introduced another layer of meaning into my story. The poet Susan Kolodny, in writing and the psyche's assessment of danger, has described the challenges facing us as we revise and deepen our work. This process, she says, requires time and patience. It confronts us with charged emotional material and so often mobilizes anxiety. She advises us to revisit our experiences, to revision them. If we do, we might find that thus far we have been distorting and misrepresenting ourselves and our story. For instance, turning negative feelings into positive ones, selfish feelings into generous ones, or omitting positive moments from our narratives. This happened to me in writing Combat Zones. What I left out of an extremely early draft was the happiness I experienced during the war years and having my mother all to myself. This I initially refused to write about. 
though the moments had presented themselves during the germinating stage because i was so intent upon writing a narrative about my grievances against my parents i hadn't written about my mother singing to me her reading to me her teaching me to read the pampering i received the jubilant parties we had with other women and other children the free and easy rhythm of a life lived without men and without too rigid a daily schedule but at first i also couldn't write about the intensity of my father's rages once i revisioned the war years i wrote many scenes about how close my mother and i were this enriched me i regained my former happiness and joy as yeats wrote whenever i remake a song it is myself that i remake ordering shaping as with other stages, in the ordering and shaping stage, it's important to follow our intuition about how our work should be organized, which scene should come first, what should follow, what should be juxtaposed with what, and how it should end. This involves an openness to our creation, to the form it has started to take almost without our realizing it. For some projects, we will find that our work is now nearly complete. We reshuffle some paragraphs, write transitions, and new opening or closing. Say, trim, expand, reword, sharpen. For other projects, the form might become apparent only very late in the process, and we may still have some major work to do. Usually, though, we will proceed with the work with a degree of confidence we may not have had before. However, much we must do it is at the shaping stage that we take a piece of writing and turn it into a work of art. For it is at this stage that we can finally give our full attention to form and we can reap the emotional benefits of having turned the seeming chaos of our experience into the order of a fully realized, carefully crafted, highly original work. The shape of our work will contribute most, much to its meaning and paying attention to its form can teach us much too about how we've come to understand our experience. For Andrew Brink, the emotional advantage of this phase of our work is making whole what was sundered or incomplete. Perhaps now, for the first time, we think of a reader, someone completely unfamiliar with our experience, to whom our work must be completely intelligible. We begin to realize that we will finish. Our major emotional challenge now is to prepare ourselves to complete the work and to let ourselves finish it, for we must not prolong our work on this project indefinitely, shaping it and reshaping it endlessly if we want to garner the benefits, senses of worth, accomplishment, and closure primarily that come when the work is done. Still many of us, perhaps unconsciously, fear the loss of our work, which often reawakens other losses we've endured. What will we do with ourselves when we're finished? What feelings have we kept at bay that will return once we're done? Sometimes we subvert our process, shaping our work haphazardly, undoing what we've done, giving ourselves even more work to do so we can hang on to our work indefinitely. Somehow, for some reason, it took Goethe 60 years to complete his Faust. To help ourselves finish, we can write about these feelings in our process journals or write about how we felt before upon completing our projects. Perhaps reading entries made at this stage during another project will help. Now too, we can plan some special reward or take some time to plan a new creative venture we can forward to beginning. 
when one of my students was finishing her memoir about her childhood, the title Snapshots came to her suddenly very late in the process. She realized its appropriateness when she remembered that someone who'd harmed her had taken photographs of her. She hadn't yet described the photos. Her title gave her an idea about how to organize her work. She realized that because her memories were disjointed, she could organize her piece as snapshots of her experiences. She could also play with the word, the snapping noise of the elastic band of her garments, how this person shot glances at her during family parties. Now she clearly understood the final work she had to do. Break up her narrative, order the moments, write some images and metaphors. She remembered, too, that once this person had taken photographs of other children, too. Describing her response to this moment added greater depth to that what was already a potent work. When another of my students came to the stage as she was writing a work about her father's suicide, she realized that the only part of her project she thought worthwhile was when she used the form of an imaginary letter to tell him how his act had affected her life. She decided to rewrite her entire work as a series of letters. Though this meant rewriting 30 pages, she intuitively sensed this was necessary, but her work went quickly and directly and she discovered that converting what she'd written into this new form wasn't difficult. I have found that at this stage, reshaping our work intuitively is advantageous. This I learned from Eudora Welty. At this stage, Welty took a typescript of her work, cut it into sections, and shuffled the sections around while they made narrative, artistic, and emotional sense. Then she used straight pins to fasten the pieces she thought belonged together, as one pins the pieces of a dress before sewing. This artful, homespun, carefully crafted process suited her and her work. It is a method I've borrowed without the dressmaker pins and one I've taught my students. There's something about taking the typescript of a neat, nearly finished work. I use a copy of the original, cutting it to pieces and moving them around that lets you alter your preconceptions and see how organizational possibilities, see new organizational possibilities in your work. This method lets you play with the form of a work that's not necessarily logical, one that might instead be a new synthesis of thought and feeling. When I shaped combat zones, I knew that I wanted the work to be organized according to how I had developed emotionally in writing the work. I wanted to contrast my life with my mother during the war with my life with my parents upon my father's return. I wanted to highlight the big battle my father and I had when he came home, to use it to represent all those early fights. I wanted to interrupt descriptions of my childhood with present-day reflections. I wanted to begin with strife and battles in the world in our home, but end with peace and contentment. It was a complex design, but I accomplished it in less time than I imagined. Very late, I decided I would sometimes use present tense for immediacy, sometimes past tense for reflection. Two distinctive voices emerged, a narrative voice and a reflective voice. Without being entirely conscious of what I've done, I described how events and feelings are connected in an elaborate formal design. The work begins with a long litany of what had happened the day of my birth. Battles on Guadalcanal and New Guinea 
wartime blackout regulations to give a sense of the historical context that shaped my life. But I end it with an idyllic memory of my mother during the war years framed in the kitchen window of our apartment, singing as she takes washing off the line and I play in the yard below. Though this has been a war story, the last words of combat zones are, I have never been, will never be happier. Writing the piece, let me remember that moment and return it to it emotionally, an enriching healing experience. Completing, the literary critic Mitchell A. Liska once said that every word in a finished work is there by choice, not by chance. As we finish our work, we must revisit it again, sometimes with a writing partner's or editor's help. We don't make major changes unless they're warranted, but we fine-tune what's already there. We learn to pay attention to detail. This is a slow, meticulous, often plotting process, something many of my students preferred not doing, yet it's necessary, though sometimes unpleasant work, like heaving bricks over a wall. Virginia Woolf said, Finishing strong is something great athletes learn, a champion sprint swimmer student of mine once told a class. Finishing strong is something writers also must learn. In taking care of details, in polishing and finishing, in making sure that we produce a beautiful, clean manuscript, we show that we respect ourselves, our work, and our readers. It makes no sense to spend weeks, months, or years writing, and then, when finishing, to produce a slovenly, careless effort. As we revisit our work, when we come to the realization that we are finally completing it, we might sense that, though we've said much, there is so much more to say. If we want to finish this work, though, we must understand that each effort will be incomplete and imperfect. Each time we write, we can tell only a small piece of our story. We might realize, too, that our sense of these events might change with time as we ourselves change and grow, and that what we have written is inevitably only a partial rendering. Many writers, Nancy Mears, Virginia Woolf, Tim O'Brien, Isabel Allende, Tennessee Williams, among them, continually continually rewrite their lives. Completing our work then can help us learn to live with change and impermanence, but to find to a solid center beneath the flux. Through our work, we come to respect our limitations that at a given time, we can understand only a small fragment of a very big picture. This then helps us become humble and wise. When we finish, we find a way to let go. This is important, for life is a series of partings. Ted Hughes, husband of Sylvia Plath, felt compelled to write poems about her and her death for 35 years. It wasn't until he collected his birthday letters, though, that he felt this chapter in his life was complete. Frank McCurt, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Angela's Ashes, said that though he had told stories about his childhood, if he hadn't written his about growing up Irish and poor, he would have died howling, Completion brought him peace. It's captured, he said. Our challenge now is to take care of ourselves. Since finishing perhaps reactivates former painful experiences of loss, it helps to have something to anticipate. A holiday, a treat, a new piece of work, a new skill to learn. Perhaps the most eloquent expression of what we accomplish by writing, particularly by writing narrative, is provided by Daniel Taylor in The Healing Power of Stories. 
Our work, he tells us, helps us take ourselves and our lives seriously. It links past, present, and future in a way that tells us where we have been even before we were born, where we are, and where we could be going. We realize how choices and events are tied together, why things are and how things could be. Through writing, we can see ourselves as something more and better than we are presently, and so we can chart a course that can help us grow beyond the profound changes we've accomplished in doing our work. Finishing my memoir was a complex complex experience, exhilarating yet wrenching. To ease the loss I knew I would feel upon finishing, I decided to learn, really learn, everything about biscotti and how to make them. Standing in my messy kitchen, trying out new recipe after another, deluging the family with tiny, with tins of cranberry pistachio biscotti, chocolate orange hazelnut biscotti, double almond biscotti, visiting coffee houses in New York to sample their wares, all eased the transition to life beyond the memoir. Of course, given the kind of person I am, I now wanted to write a biscotti cookbook, but I discovered too that I wanted to write this book. Here's the best biscotti recipe I devised from that complicated time. The writer's blues chocolate hazelnut orange biscotti pick-me-up. Ingredients. Three large eggs, one cup sugar, diced rind of one orange, blanched for a minute in boiling water, two one-quarter cups flour, one teaspoon baking powder, half teaspoon salt, one cup chocolate pieces, one cup shelled, hulled hazelnuts, toasted. Method. Preheat oven to 350 degrees. Beat eggs, sugar, and orange rind together for three minutes. In a separate bowl, mix flour, baking powder, and salt. Mix egg mixture into flour mixture with a wooden spool only until incorporated. Add chocolate pieces and toasted hazelnuts. Mix only until incorporated into the dough. Until Using wet hands, shape dough into two rounded long loaves. Bake for about 30 minutes or until very well browned. Remove from baking sheet and cool on rack for 10 minutes. Slice on a diagonal. Place biscotti upright on pan. Return to oven and bake until tri- dry about 10 minutes. Having one with a cup of latte, I guarantee will be a sublime experience. When I finished my memoir, I felt that a phase of my life was over, that some of what had pained me and overwhelmed me i had put behind me yet i felt that my past was connected in many positive ways to my present life i would not i realized be the person i am now without these experiences no matter how painful we weave our memories into narrative says leonard shangold author of soul murder from which we construct our identities my writing then enabled me to have a more sympathetic, yet paradoxically, more, a more detached understanding of who I had been and how I now was. As Edvige Giunte observed, through writing we learn to read our lives. Aaron L. Mushara, PhD in Narrative and Psychotherapy, says that writing changes our relationship to past events and what they mean in the present. That is not done by language alone, but by an opening up to the experience that involves the entire bodily self. As we write, we see ourselves as part of a larger story rather than continuing to see the story through our singular perspective. Through writing my life, I became ready to move on, and I hoped that I'd written my, what I'd written might 
prove useful to others, just as what I had read had helped and sustained me. As Edmund Wilson observed in a letter to Louis Bogan, the only thing that we can really make is our work, and deliberate work of the mind, imagination, and hand, done as Nietzsche said, notwithstanding, in the long run, remakes the world. Now at the completion of our work is when we deliberate ourselves and our accomplishment, when we take pride in ourselves and our writing, when we fashion and engage in a completion ceremony to mark our work's end. As we pack and store our earlier drafts, as we clear our desks, we ready ourselves for the future. Now, too, is when we can reflect upon what our work has given us and how we can show our gratitude for having writing to turn to whenever we choose to help us grow, to help us heal. What you can do now. As you work, can you pay respectful attention to what emerges, letting the writer writing tell you where to go? Can you, nonetheless, work in an orderly way? Can you complete a draft of a lengthy work? Can you deepen your work using the suggestions provided? Can you use metaphors, images, and symbols? Can you revisit your experience as you revise? What does your work tell you about its organization? What form has it started to take? Can you discover a method for shaping your work? Can you accept the challenge of completing your work? Can you discover how you've grown? Can you celebrate your accomplishment? Can you imagine what might come next? 